0: And we started a series last week uh, called Missing, and the series was really born out of this idea that, that for most of us, our, our experience has been, while life has been pretty good, and for the most part, things are going well for most of us, that there's something that we feel like, even even in our best seasons, even in the good times, there's just this feeling of something is just not quite there. There's just something missing. And, and we kind of said, hey, we've all been there, we've all experienced that, we've all felt that, but what do we do about it? How, how, do we, how do we identify it? How do we move forward? How do we fix it? Is it something to be fixed? What do we do about this feeling that something's missing? And, and last week, we looked at this passage in Matthew chapter 11. I love this verse uh, where Jesus is talking, and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I love that promise. And I read that promise and I go, man, that sounds amazing. But I look at my life and I go, I don't know that I always feel like I have rest for my soul. I don't know that I always feel like the yoke is easy and the burden is light. So what's the problem here? What's, what's the issue? Because Jesus promised This thing, if we would follow him, but my life doesn't always match up to that. And I would guess that your life doesn't always match up to that either. And then we looked at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 to get a clue about maybe what's missing. And he said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And we read that and we go, oh man, maybe the thing that's missing. This is what we said last week. And, and if you if you missed um, the, the, the sermon last week, you can always go on our website, yes 2 and, and listen to those. You can find us on iTunes. There's a podcast you can subscribe to if you don't want to miss any of the messages. But what we decided last week, what we kind of discovered, is that the way to find this missing thing, the way to find this rest for our souls, this thing that, that we're missing, the way to get it, the way to find it, Is by surrendering to God completely. And man, some of us needed to hear that. Some of us needed to be reminded that that's what it means. And we rejoice over the idea of saying, yes, God, I'm fully surrendered to you. But practically, what does that actually look like? I mean, what do we actually do to hear from God and say yes to him. What are we supposed to be looking for? How do we do that? What does it even look like? I think those are some of the questions that we're left with after we say, okay, yes, God, I want to be fully surrendered to you, but, but how do I do that? And so today, what I thought we would do is, is take a look at somebody who said yes to God. Somebody who found their life's purpose, their life's work. By saying yes to God, and and fortunately for us, this person um, wrote down some memoirs for us, and we can read those and see what happened in his life, how he came uh, into the position that he did, how he came to this place of saying yes to God, and, and maybe we can find some clues, some some practical clues for us on how we can hear from God and say yes to him. So that's what I'd like to do uh, uh, this morning, and we're going to do that by taking a look at the book, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to chapter one of the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put the text up on the screen so you can read along with us as we go along this morning. Um, But before we dive into the text, I feel like I need to give you a little bit of background. I feel like jumping into the middle of the Old Testament is a little bit like jumping into the middle of Lord of the Rings. If you haven't seen what's going on before or after, you're going to be a little bit lost. So let me just give you kind of the background on this epic story that we're jumping into the middle of, all right? Here's what happened. A long, 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 long time ago, thousands of years ago, God said, I want to reveal myself to the world. So I'm going to set aside a people group that's going to represent me more clearly to the rest of the world. And those people were the Israelites. Now they were called that because um, their great-great-grandfather, one of their forefathers, was named Israel. And so they were called the Israelites. Well, the Israelites were God's chosen people. And Israel's great-grandfather, or grandfather, I believe, Israel's grandfather was a guy named Abraham. And Abraham had been given a promise from God that he would get this promised land and that God would use him to reveal himself to the rest of the world. And, and so these descendants are the descendants of Abraham. They're the, the people who are of the promise, as it's um, called in the Bible. It says that sometimes about these people. But they're God's people. They are set us apart to represent God. But there were some problems. They were in slavery in Egypt and Moses led them out of slavery and into the promised land and that was amazing and they got to go uh, into this place and, and fulfill the promise that God had given to Abraham and they loved God and they worshiped God for it and God was with them and protected them for a while. Pretty soon they forgot about God. They turned away from God, and God turned away from them and allowed other people to come in and attack them and, and allowed them to suffer hardship and allowed bad things to happen so that they would repent and turn back to God, which they did several times. And we went through this cycle over and over and over again of the Israelites turning to God, turning away from God, turning to God, turning away from God. And every time they turned away, God would send a new group of people in to kind of wake them up, to shake up the city uh, and get their attention. Well, one of the times, the, in fact, the last time that this happened, was in about 586 B.C. We're going to put this up on uh, a timeline here so you can kind of see what's happening here. So 586 B.C. Now, before I get into the details of this... uh, Some of you are going to go back and like research all of these dates, and that's awesome. I'm so glad you're going to do that. What you're going to find is that my dates might not match exactly what you find, because it depends on which scholar you're reading. It depends on which expert is um, putting those dates together, because there wasn't a B.C. calendar like we have. Like In 586 B.C., they didn't know it was 586 B.C., That's not what they called it, right? So so they called it like in the 20th year or in the 40th year of this emperor. And so there's a little bit of ambiguity about exactly what year this is. So so it's around 586 B.C. that Jerusalem falls to the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians come in. They overthrow the city. The Jews are taken into exile, many of them taken into Babylon. This is where the story, some of you familiar with the Old Testament, of um, um, Daniel... um, Um, and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys were all taken into Babylon, part of this exile. That's where those take place in the timeline. And so that happened in 586 B.C. Fast forward to 539 B.C. In 539 B.C., Babylon is overthrown by the Persians. And the Persian government allows the first set of Jews to return to Jerusalem. So some of those who were exiled go back to the city to start rebuilding it, to start taking that land again, and they go back there. Fast forward a little bit farther to 515 or 520 B.C., somewhere in there, and the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt. Um, And also, they attempted a rebuilding of the wall. But the king in Persia decided that he didn't want the Jews um, who were living in Jerusalem to have that much security or that much power. He was a little bit afraid of them. And so he commanded his agents there overseeing Jerusalem to not allow the wall to be rebuilt. And it says in Ezra that they they, um, made sure that the wall was not rebuilt, and they did so with force. So around 515 or 520, Jerusalem gets destroyed kind of again. And then we fast forward to where our story picks up with Nehemiah in 445 B.C., about 60 or 65 years later, and this is where we're jumping into the story. So now you kind of have an idea of the timeline, of of what's going on here, of what has happened to God's people. They've been exiled, they've gone back, they've tried to rebuild the city, they were unsuccessful. They rebuilt the temple, but they're still unsecured. The city is still broken down, it's still in ruin, uh, and they are not safe there in that place. And we pick up our story there, and here's where we find out what happens to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, it says this. In the month of Kislev, now that is approximately November, December on our calendar um, because we don't call months Kislev anymore. Although I think we should, maybe it'd be fun, right? We should go back to that. That sounds way more fun than November to me. Anyway, um, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that has survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So, this is where Nehemiah picks up, right? His brother, probably his literal brother, but maybe not, had gone to Jerusalem, had seen the state of things, and had come back the more than 500 miles between Jerusalem and Susa, um, more than 500 miles of travel for that. He came all of this way. Finally, 65 years later, Nehemiah is hearing a report of the city, and what he hears breaks his heart. The city is in ruin, it's disgrace for the Jews. It's terrible. The walls have been broken down. The gates are burned with fire. It's not safe and it's terrible. God's city, the, the city of the people of God, is in ruin. And what's Nehemiah's response? He's broken over this he, he says he sat down and wept and for some days i mourned and fasted before the lord god nehemiah is just completely overwhelmed emotionally by the state of jerusalem he's, he's completely broken over it and i think that this is where we find our first clue and that oftentimes our emotions will give us clues as to what god is asking us to do our emotions give us clues. Nehemiah's emotions gave him a clue. But here's the thing about emotions. We can't completely trust them because they can be deceptive sometimes. And, and anybody who's watched a, a sappy movie knows that, right? For some reason, you start finding yourself crying for absolutely no reason, right? And, and you're not even sure Why? but sometimes your emotions can deceive you. They can make you do things or think things or say things that you don't really mean, that you don't really actually believe, right? Anybody ever been in an argument with their spouse, right? I mean, no, we never argue, right? I mean, we're perfect, right? That's, yeah, right? That'd be amazing. Um, so, um, I mean, it's usually my fault, but I'm just saying, right? Anybody who's been in an argument knows that emotions, you can't fully and completely trust them. But they do provide a clue, right? And this is true in our relationships. Like, we know this, right? Because you'll be upset about something. That's a clue that something's wrong. And you need to have a reasonable and logical sometimes and real conversation with, around that emotion. But you can't just let your emotions drive what you do or what you think. And, and Nehemiah knows this. So our, our emotions provide a clue for us. But prayer and fasting clarifies the clue Nehemiah spends days, for some days, I fasted and prayed before the Lord to see what he'd have me do, to see where he was going with this, to see where this is leading, because I wasn't sure what this meant. I wasn't sure where we were going with this. So I mourned and fasted and prayed over this thing for a long time. That's what Nehemiah does. And so our clue is the same, right? Our emotions provide a clue, but prayer clarifies that clue. And then we can read on um, in Nehemiah chapter one. What happens is Nehemiah says this and then he goes into this prayer that he prays before God. It's it's an amazing prayer and I would encourage you uh, to read it sometime this week. In verses, uh, I believe it's five through 11, um, Nehemiah reads this prayer and he he praises God for who he is. He confesses his own sin and the sins of the people. He thanks God for the promise and for, for what God is going to do. He thanks him in anticipation of what God is going to do, reminding God of the promise that he's made and then he gets to the end of his prayer and finally he makes a request and what he says to god at the end of that prayer is let your ear be attentive to your servant and give me success in the presence of this man So after days of uh, praying and fasting, Nehemiah finally says, here's my prayer, I'm writing it down uh, in my memoirs, and and I'm asking God to do what I can't do. I'm asking God to change the heart of the person I'm about to go talk to. I'm asking God to move in the life of the person I need to speak with. I'm asking God to give me favor in the presence of this person. Now, who was the person? Well, Well, first, let's talk a little bit more about Nehemiah. Because at the end of his prayer, after he prays this amazing prayer, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 11, part B, says this. I was cupbearer to the king. Now why does Nehemiah tell us that? Why is he giving us a job title right now? Well, I think before we can understand that, we need to know what the cupbearer actually meant. Like, what does this position actually do and, and, and in those days, what would happen is, the, the cupbearer, he, he wasn't just a waiter, right? He didn't just bring the drink to the king. What he would do is he actually would manage the wine. He would pour the wine in the glass, and he would personally uh, uh, drink the wine to, to make sure that it wasn't been poisoned, that it hadn't been tainted. And then he would personally carry and oversee that all the way into the king's hand and ensure that the king was safe to drink that particular drink, And so Nehemiah was a very, very, very trusted person by the king. He had to be in order to have that position. In fact, uh, in later years, sometimes this, this title was actually given to people who didn't have the position but were simply close to the king because this position required such a closeness, such a trust from the king that the title was given to people who didn't actually do the job but were that close to the individual. And so what we learn here is that Nehemiah is in a circumstance that most Jews, were, in fact, most Persians weren't in this circumstance. He had an opportunity that most people would never have, and that is an audience with the king, the king who trusted him. Now, there were also a lot of laws in Persia, that if you approached the king without being summoned, you could be killed. There were laws that if you asked the king for something and he didn't like the way you asked it, you could be killed. So it doesn't mean that everything's great for Nehemiah, but it does mean that there's a circumstance that Nehemiah is going to use. And this is our second clue that God often allows our circumstances to affect the burden that he's given us. He often allows our circumstances to affect the burden that he's given us. In Nehemiah's case, he had an audience with the king. He was able to stand in the king's presence. That was going to happen at some point. I mean, at some point, the king was going to need another glass of wine, and he was going to call for Nehemiah. And I don't know what your circumstances are, but God uses our circumstances oftentimes to affect the burden that he's given us. And I'll give you a great example from right here in our church. In fact, it's a very personal example. Some of you know this about me. Some of you know this about my story. I've been uh, the next-gen pastor just for about two and a half years. But prior to that, my wife and I have been in this church for more than ten years. And one of the first things, it's, it's actually kind of ironic, one of the, the first um, jobs that I had here in the church as a, as a volunteer some 10 years ago, um, at that time, the person who was actually in the position that I'm in now um, needed some help with a computer. And it happened to be a Macintosh computer. And those of you who know me know that I have a little bit of an obsession with Apple. It's a little unhealthy, but I've really scaled back, and so I think we're okay now, really. Really? I mean, the first step is admitting you have a problem. I'm doing that, right, okay? Um, but I'm okay, right, I'm okay. Um, I haven't bought anything Apple in several months, all right? Um, so we're okay, all right? But I, I had this love of, of Apple products, and, and for whatever reason, right, I'm, I'm a nerd, it's okay. Um, I've accepted it, I've moved on. So, so, And she was having some problems with this computer, and so I came to help her one day with this computer, and what I ended up doing um, after that one meeting, was saying, hey, would you like me to just come in and do this work for you every week? I, I don't mind. I would just need, you know, access to the computer in the, in the building. And, and she said yes. And that was my first job, was setting up um, really the slides and the technology for the elementary students in room 208 on the Macintosh computer 10 years ago. That was my first uh, job in this church, and, and I said yes to that because I had a burden for it, and and our circumstances were we were in this church, and that led to other serving opportunities and other doors that God would open, and pretty soon God would lead me down a path that led to uh, a pastor um, title and, and and to a position of of overseeing all of these things. I had no idea that God was going to take me down that path, and my circumstances have led me to this place. Right, I'm not in some other church in Kansas where we grew up because we were here. And I didn't pursue a job at some other church because we were here. And I just waited for God to open the door here where I was. The circumstances led me to the place where God would open the door for work to happen, for the work that he called me to to happen. So our circumstances often provide a door. And that was what happened for Nehemiah, right? His circumstances opened the door because here's what happened. If we pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, here's what we read. In the month of Nisan, another fun month, right? I mean... I know a car company who'd be thrilled if we named them on that, right? But anyway, that's um, like April, March, April, May, somewhere in there. So there's about four or five months difference here in, in the time frame, just so you're um, keeping up with that. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So here's what happens. Nehemiah's position, Nehemiah's circumstances allowed a door to be opened. The king asked him about his faith, about why he was so sad. And Nehemiah was terrified because again, if he said something the king didn't like, he could be not only removed from the position, but he could be killed over this thing. But Nehemiah saw the open door, and he said, okay, God, you open the door. I'm going to step through and see what happens. And this is our third clue, that when God opens the door, when the door appears to be open like it did for Nehemiah, we step through it and see what happens. When the door appears to be open, we step through the door and see what happens. And this is what Nehemiah did. He stepped through to see what would happen. And guess what happens? We pick up in the next verse, and here's what it says happened. The king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And the king said yes. Not only did the king say yes, but Nehemiah goes on to ask for bigger things. Nehemiah would go on to ask for letters of passage so that he wouldn't be killed on the trip, like letters with the king's seal on it, so that he could travel the 500 plus miles back from Susa back to Jerusalem without any trouble from any of the people, uh, any of the guards along the road. The king gives him that. He says, oh, by the way, king, when I get there... It's going to take some resources. I'm going to need some lumber uh, to do this. And the king says, sure, you can cut down as many trees as you want from, a for- from my forest. right?" And God gives him that. God moves the king's heart to give him the, the lumber. And not only does Nehemiah get the two things he asked for, these letters of passage and the lumber, Nehemiah also gets an armed escort The king sends his own men, his own soldiers, with Nehemiah as an armed escort. And God allows all of these things to happen because Nehemiah said yes to the burden, prayed to clarify that clue, right? He stepped into the circumstance. God used those circumstances to open the door. And Nehemiah stepped through the door to see what would happen. And what happened is God moved in an amazing way to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The thing that Nehemiah was seeking and longing to do. and it was incredible. And you can read the rest of the story. The rest of Nehemiah, through about chapter eight, talks about the rebuilding of the wall and all the challenges that, that Nehemiah faced and led them through. I encourage you to read. That's a great story. Um, you can read through that, uh, maybe even this week, and see how God continued to have his hand on the work that Nehemiah was doing. Uh, but here's what happens. Nehemiah rallies the people. He surveys the state of things. He gets the people together and leads them. And over the course of 52 days, just 52 days, the entire wall and all of the gates are rebuilt and rehung. This is fifty-two days. With without machinery, without power tools, in fifty-two days, they rebuild the wall. It's completed in fifty-two days. And it was an amazing thing to watch what God did. And as he did that, Nehemiah would then go on to continue to govern the city. But God would bring a, a new life to that, that city and brought re- restoration to the Jews and brought um, really a, a new sense of, of purpose and meaning and brought dignity back to the city. To that city, as as Nehemiah said, yes to this, but that's not the most amazing part. The most amazing part is that some four hundred years later, Nehemiah had no idea this would happen. But some four hundred years later, a baby would be born, not in Jerusalem. That baby would be God's son, born from the Virgin Mary. He would live the perfect life that God has commanded us through his law to live, but that we are incapable of living because of sin. But Jesus would live that life for us, a perfect life, and then Jesus who lived the perfect life and didn't deserve to die, would go willingly to die in our place, to take our place on that cross, to pay for our sin, so that we no longer have to face the consequences of sin, which is separation from God for eternity. But now we can know God. We can be with him both in this life and in eternity. And all of that happened because Nehemiah built the walls. And why do I say that? Because the city that Jesus walked into to be crucified in is the city that Nehemiah rebuilt. Nehemiah had no idea what God was going to do. He had no idea the part that he would play in the history of the world. He had no idea how God wanted to use his burden over the city to affect all of us and all of history as Jesus went through those gates to be hung on a cross, to die in my place, to die in your place, so that we could know God. And friends, you have no idea. You have no idea what God wants to do with the burden that he's put on your heart. You have no idea what he wants to do with your life, you have no idea how he wants to use you to change the future, maybe the future of Colorado Springs, maybe the future of the state of Colorado, maybe the nation, maybe the world, you have no idea, friends. There are people from this church who have been sent to foreign countries because they said yes to God, because God led them to go into Africa, God led them to go into these places, and hundreds of churches have sprung up because they said yes, and they had no idea. when they said, yeah, we'll go to a Bible study. That that's what God was going to do. That that's where God was going to lead them. So friends, listen to me. If you want your life to matter, if you want to say yes to God, here's how it works. Pay attention to the clues that God has given you. Pay attention to that burden that he's put on your heart. Be prayerful about it. Listen to the Lord. Seek after what he wants you to do. Let him clarify that. Look for the open doors. Look for the circumstances that God will move in, that God will use you in. And then when the door appears to be open, walk through it. Because friends, you don't know. You just don't know what God wants to do with your life. And friends, it's not just the walls of Jerusalem that are broken down. The walls, figuratively, of Colorado Springs are broken down. There is great need in this place. There is needs uh, in the homeless shelter. There's needs um, all over the city in all kinds of circumstances. We're we're on a high rate of human trafficking in this city. There are all kinds of things that God wants to do and affect and change. And and what is God saying to you this morning? What is the burden that he's putting on your heart today? Because the city walls, as I look at the city walls of Colorado Springs, I see gaps in the wall. I see holes in the wall. I see people who who are marginalized. I see people who are ignored. I see people who are not being cared for and loved. And friends, it's not just Colorado Springs. It's in Pikes Peak Christian Church. There are holes in the walls of our church. And so in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to do something. In, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you, there's a card uh, in the front of the seat in front of you, in that pocket. And it's a volunteer card. But here's what I'm actually asking you to do. It has a, has a heart-shaped puzzle on it. Here's what I want you to do. I, I'm going to just spend a few minutes describing for you some of the ways that the walls are broken down right here in Pikes Peak Christian Church and in our city and what I want you to do is, I don't want you to commit to anything today, but, but if you would, would you write your name in a way that we can contact you on that card, and then whatever you are burdened over, whatever breaks your heart, you know that thing that whenever you think about it, you have to bite your lip in public so you don't cry? That thing, what is that thing? Maybe it's the homeless. Maybe it's those who are involved in uh, have been trafficked. Maybe it's single moms. Maybe it's single dads, maybe it's military families. I, I, I don't know what it is for you, but there is something I believe that God has put a burden on your heart today, and I believe he wants to use you to affect that burden. Friends, I want to see you step into that. I want to see you find the rest for your souls that comes when you say yes to what God is calling you to do. So as I describe the holes, w- would you consider, just pay attention to the emotion. Where is God breaking your hearts? Guys, we need about 50 people, 50 adults or teenagers to say yes to the lives of kids in our early childhood and elementary programs. Because these kids come in and they're expecting to go to class and have a great time on Sunday morning, but sometimes we have more kids than we have adults and we have to say no to them. And guys, it's fun in here for us maybe, but not so much fun in here for a little kid. And we know that. That's why we've built environments just for them. But if we can't keep them safe, we can't have them over there. Guys, our elementary kids, guys, these kids are facing things that you cannot possibly imagine in third and fourth grade. It is unreal what these kids have to deal with at this age. And what they need more than anything is adults who love them, who when they show up on Sunday morning are happy to see them no matter how bad they look when they come in, no matter how sad they are, no matter how dirty they might come here. They need adults who will say yes to them. As our students, our middle schoolers and high schoolers, we need about 10 people who will step in and say yes to leading a small group of high schoolers and middle schoolers. And I can't tell you. I can't tell you the brokenness in our middle schoolers. I can't tell you the brokenness in our high schoolers. Guys, if I could tell you the stories, I would, but I I can't even relay them to you. It's so broken, so messed up, and they need adults who will come in and say, I don't care that you're broken. I don't care that you're messed up. I don't care that you sinned. I want you to know the God who loves you. Guys, we need people in our our care center. There are people who come in there every day, broken, looking for some hope, looking for some help. We need people who will greet them, who will welcome them, people who will help them get the help that they need with a smile, not judge them, but love them as they are. We need the same thing in our front office, people who will be here Monday through Friday. Guys, it's not just Sunday that people show up here broken. I don't know if you knew that or not, but all throughout the week, people show up at the office needing prayer, show up at the office needing help, needing hope, needing someone to just say, I care about what you're going through. We need people in the front office to meet them, to greet them, to help with that. Guys, we need musicians up here. We need singers up here to help lead us into worship on Sunday mornings, to help us get to that place, to shake off the crap of this world and say, yes, I'm in the presence of God. We need tech team. Because without them, you couldn't actually hear me or see anything that's up here, right? Those guys are amazing, and we, need, we only have like three of them. We need people to step up and say, yes, I'll do that job. Yes, I'll step into that. I need people who will say yes to having a group of families come to their home and lead a life group. You don't even have to really do anything, but just love people. Push play on the video and ask the questions. It's not hard, but people need a chance to engage in God's word. People need a chance to say, yes, this is a place where I can do life with other people, where I can seek God together. We need those places. Guys, we need people who will step up and lead. Um, uh, We have a budgeting class that we have a need for in our um, benevolence ministry. And these guys, when they, give out, um, when they give out resources to people who are in need, they don't just give them a handout. They require them to take this budgeting class so that we can help them not only with the current need, but all the needs in the future. And maybe you're burdened over people who don't manage money well or who need some help managing money. There are places for you to step in and do those things. There are needs. There are holes in the wall all over. And there are some that I haven't even mentioned yet. And God is calling you to step in and fill those. God is calling you to step up and say yes to those holes, to fill the gap, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so that people can find hope, so that people can find Jesus, so that people can be saved.